Caution. The contents of this podcast may be historical, but they're still served piping hot. We're brewing up the classics here on the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. My name is Asa. And I'm Allison. This week on the Coffeehouse, we're going to take a look at a composer who truly embodied the aesthetic of the Romantic era, Franz Schubert, not to be confused with Schumann, who would come later. We'll also look into this thoughtful impromptu in G-flat. Franz Schubert was born in Himmelfortgrund, Austria, in 1797. You might be thinking, still in the 1700s, how could this possibly be a romantic composer? Well, Schubert is right on the coattails of the transition period between the classical and romantic eras. He met and idolized Beethoven, who is the most commonly cited romantic era transition composer. And as we'll get into a bit later, you can just hear in the music of Schubert that it is not measured and strict as the classical era music had been. Furthermore, his style had very strong influences on later Middle Romantic composers, such as Schumann, Liszt, and Tchaikovsky, among others. That's not to say he didn't find influences in the classical era, though. He did appreciate the music of Haydn, even writing his Fifth Symphony in a quasi-Haydn style. In his early years, Schubert's older brother and father tried to teach him various instruments. However, Schubert unexpectedly excelled far beyond their skills, so outside lessons were found for him. By the time he was 10, he was highly skilled at the piano, organ, violin, and viola. He also sang. As a young child with a sweet bird-like voice, he joined the Imperial Court Chapel Choir in Vienna, where Salieri was currently teaching. Now, Salieri saw great potential in Schubert and encouraged him to try his best in all his endeavors, particularly music. He is quoted to have said of the young Schubert, He can do everything. He is a genius. And goes on to elaborate how Schubert was already capable of writing complex and lovely sounding songs, operas, quartets, and even masses. It seems that, to Salieri, Schubert was the smartest person he knew. It took a while for Schubert to take that advice to heart, though. Rather than pursuing music full-time, he first aspired to be a schoolteacher and just keep up with music on the side. Lucky for him, he had an easy in to the teaching profession as his father owned the town's schoolhouse. Schubert was a very lousy teacher, though. Apparently, he was incapable of being strict with his pupils, so order was never achieved in his classroom. So already, we could see his career trajectory changing. The same year he began teaching is when he produced a musical work that really put him on the map, Gretchen and Her Spinning Wheel, based on the legend of Faust. And he didn't stop there. Even when composing was just a side gig, he had a prolific output of songs, symphonies, sonatas, and more. Finally, it became apparent that he could no longer pretend to be a full-time teacher, and instead put his whole focus into composition. But that's not to say he never taught again. He still supplemented his income with private lessons, notably from teaching the children of the famous music-loving Esterhazy court. 
As a successful composer, Schubert met many artistic scholars. His best friend was the poet Franz von Schober. He collaborated with one of history's most famous baritone singers, Johannes Vogel, and most importantly, his music was seen in high regard by Beethoven. Schubert was among the friends who gathered at Beethoven's deathbed, and though there are many fallacies around what exactly was said during Beethoven's drawn-out death, his admiration for Schubert is passed down in the quote, Franz has my soul. Though Schubert was a prolific composer in the early days, few of his works made it to the public performances. Rather, his friends would gather for nightly poetry and music sessions which revolved around Schubert's tunes. The friends dubbed themselves the Schubertians, and these little parties were called Schubertads. These gatherings likely didn't happen in Schubert's own home, though. He never lived a wealthy life and apparently never even owned his own piano. As such, a majority of his works can be assumed to have been composed straight from his head, rather than hearing what they might sound like on a piano first. But this did produce good results. His pensive nature and constant romanticism led to pieces such as his eighth unfinished symphony that is wrought with emotion, and contrasting works such as Die Forelle, or The Trout, which is more peppy and jubilant. Finally, in 1821, Schubert published his first works, a collection of songs. This was the perfect dose of Schubert for the general public, as songs could readily be learned and performed by almost anyone without needing a proper concert, and thus the news of Schubert's greatness was able to spread quickly. Sadly, all good things must come to an end. Unfortunately, Schubert's end was hastened by syphilitic disease complications. At the end of his life, he often felt restless and was advised by doctors to try and get exercise and get out into the country. One such voyage took him to the grave of Haydn, and it apparently brightened his spirits and slightly improved his health. However, he would soon go downhill rapidly. In a letter, he wrote that he had not been able to eat for 11 days. A few days before his death in a hospital, he began raving about his room being unfamiliar and that he needed to see Beethoven, who had passed away the year before in 1827. Finally, Schubert died at age 31 in 1828. His funeral was well attended by friends and family members. Later, his friends still wanting to celebrate the life of this great composer pulled together a concert of his works. The concert was a success, and so another one was put on as well. And finally, the whole gamut of compositions from this great composer were getting out to the world. The whole point of these concerts were to raise money to purchase a grand monument for Schubert's grave, and this monument still stands on his grave to this day, which is located as near to Beethoven's as could be achieved. So now let's talk about Schubert's Impromptu in G-flat. This piece was written in 1827, the year before Schubert died. It was published as part of a set of four impromptus, and another set was also published posthumously. Schubert can be thought of as the father of the impromptu, as he was the first romantic composer to really embrace and perfect the style. But what exactly is an impromptu? Hmm. As the name suggests, it is meant to sound somewhat improvisatory, as though the performer is just sitting down at the piano and playing what comes to mind. Because of that, the style usually features flowy or showy running arpeggios and scales, and then there's a melody that is much slower and somewhat simple over top. And that's exactly what we hear in this G-flat major version today. 
Now, a fun fact about this piece is that when it was published, although Schubert had indeed written it in G-flat, the publishing company transposed it into G major, perhaps to make it easier. Because, of course, the key of G-flat has six flats, as opposed to G, which has only one sharp. Thanks to performers wishing to be historically accurate, it is much more common to hear the piece played in its original G-flat form. In this piece, Schubert has the performer playing the fast notes on the, quote, inside of the sound spectrum, and that means that they are sandwiched in between the melody and chords that are being played in the more extreme ranges of the treble and bass clefs. The way these notes are written is somewhat of a finger challenge for the performer as well. Not only do they have to play louder sustained notes with their weaker fingers like the ring finger and pinky, but they also have to play fast notes with the thumbs. And on top of that, sometimes it switches which hand is in charge of these fast notes so both the right and left thumbs are getting quite a workout. Schubert really does quite a good job at making this melody sound improvised. He lulls you, the listener, into a sense of security, thinking you know how this made-up tune goes. Based on the general scheme he has set up, the moving part of each phrase is a short downward turn. However, in the second strain, just when we think the melody should probably follow the same pattern, he takes it a large leap upward. What makes this turn of events even more surprising is the use of a sudden modulation. The note that is jumped up to is F-flat, which is not one of the six flats in the key signature. This means we have modulated into C-flat major, which, when translated with enharmonics, is just B major, which is, of course, the major 3 of G-flat. So overall, this is actually a very standard transition. It's just done in a sudden way, rather than with any kind of prep that most modulations have. For most of the beginning of this piece, the chords in the bass clef seemed relatively unintrusive. They tend to follow the same contours as the treble clef melody, and so they are allowed to fade into the background. However, Schubert is able to bring them to our attention here. To do so, he simply gives the bass clef a pickup note that is not heard in the treble clef to catch our ear, and then from there he has the direction of the bass and treble lines diverge so we can more easily hear what the bass line is actually up to. Now those fast notes in the middle of the staff, though they might seem unimportant, are actually key in outlining the harmony. In this little interstitial section, Schubert has the audacity to only allow the treble clef to play two notes mostly C-flat, with just a little hint of B-flat in the mix. The real movement and drama in the chord progression comes from the moving triplets in the middle. This is also a great example of voice leading during chord progressions. 
The C-flat fits in most of the harmonies being outlined below it, which is why it doesn't have to move around at all. And that is true voice leading where things are able to so subtly change that main parts don't move. The ending to this impromptu is a little cheesy. Schubert has the same little cadence repeat a few times in a row. And it seems he's really leaning into the impromptu nature here. You can almost imagine someone up at the piano having performed a lovely improvisation, but now they've kind of run out of ideas. Maybe they're looking to the audience for encouragement. Maybe they know they're just vamping now, and they give the audience a cheeky smile. <laughs> However, Schubert soon puts an end to that with a final G-flat major cadence, and finally, the running triplets move out of the center and disappear down to the depths of the bass clef. Now, we hope you've enjoyed exploring this genre of music with us today on The Coffee House. It's always fun to look at different styles of music, especially these ones that are less structured and less formal compared to our normal gamut of symphonies and sonatas. Now, if you've enjoyed what you've listened to, please leave us a review on iTunes and Google Play and consider sharing this podcast with a friend or interested family member. For The Coffee House Classical Music Podcast, I'm Asa. And I'm Allison. Thank you so much for listening. The Impromptu in G-flat Major was performed by Shiara Bertiglio. You can find The Coffee House on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can follow us on Facebook or Instagram. Email us at coffeehouseclassical at gmail.com. <laughs>